Good morning. Wow. What a start to the morning. We've been thinking about God's purpose for our church. Not, not just for us individually, and we often do things sort of on our own or just with our immediate family, but with our whole church family. What's God's purpose for Maple Valley Church? What does he have us here to do? Why does he have us doing it? And where is he leading us? We, we've been reviewing the MVC vision and mission and, and purpose statements. And what we've tried to show you uh, through Nate Strobel and David Miles and Pete Della Santina is the force of everything we do as a church family is Christ-centered and Bible-based and gospel-driven and spirit-filled. We've tried to show you from the scriptures that we didn't make this stuff up. But the Lord is in this and uniquely speaking in to our context. You see, this whole series is a precursor to what's coming next. Uh, next Sunday, the beginning of our rolling out of the 2020 vision, I'm going to hand you a document uh, that has been prayed over and edited countless times, prayed over for, for months and months, listening, discerning, gathering in prayer, prayer gatherings of the congregation, prayer gatherings of the leadership, retreats away over this document to say, Lord, is this where you are taking us next? So you're going to get that document next week. So be here. It's a plan for where we see God leading us in the next five years. Now, today's text shows us a biblical strategy that the Apostle Paul used to reach a, a city region in just three years. So, so if, if Paul can do it in three years, we're giving ourselves a little buffer to just have two extra years. Is that... Is that fair? I think that may, might be a little bit presumptuous on our part. But listen, this passage, it's practical. It's very relevant to our situation because it, it lays out the how-to strategy of reaching a whole city region. And, and so th this is it. We, we're real excited about what's coming next week. So I'm so delighted that you're here on, on a long uh, three-day weekend that you'd come, you'd make a point to come and be in church, in worship together. So I'm delighted that you're here. I'm going to invite Rich Cray to come, and he's going to share God's word with us. And we, to honor God's word, would you please uh, stand? We invite you to stand as he reads from uh, the book of Acts. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with them, and they had discussions daily in the lecture hall 
of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Seba, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who have practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and wide, widely and grew in power. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Please be seated. Spirit of the living God, we invite you now to guide our study and concentration on these words. Help us, Lord, not to be distracted. Help us to set those distractions aside that we might focus and, and see the strategy that you gave to your first apostle, uh, to the Gentiles, and to the church, and even, Lord, what we may glean and then apply in our own circumstance. We pray this to your glory. Amen. So here we have the strategy plan, the, the how-to, the, the blueprint for reaching a city region with the gospel. And Dr. Luke writes that it worked. You have a plan. It's great to have a plan, a big rollout. We're going to have a big rollout. But will it work? And by what measure do you know whether it works or not? Well, interspersed in this description that we're going to look at in just a moment uh, in detail with four points, Dr. Luke says it, it worked. It worked masterfully. So look at, verse, uh, look, at, look at verse 10. It says, all the people heard the word of the Lord. It's Paul's number one goal, that they would hear the word. Accomplished, all of them. Verse 17, the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Isn't that a worthy goal? Isn't that a measurement of how we want to say we've succeeded as a church? Like, well, our church grew, but God, God's name is in the dump. But, but our church grew. Is that No, no. His name was held in high honor. Look at verse 20. It says, the word of the Lord spread what? Widely and grew in power. So Dr. Luke is going to give us Paul's strategy, and he's going to tell us, here are the measurements, and it, and it worked. Now, the city of, of Ephesus is an ancient city on the west coast of modern Turkey. It was known as the Jewel of Asia Minor. Uh, Ephesus was the home of the temple to Ar 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 uh, Artemis, excuse me, Artemis, in Greek known as Diana, one of the seven wonders of the world. 
So it was a beautiful city. It was a, a very strategically located city because of its port. Also because of human impact on the environment, it ruined the harbor waters. And then it was prone to earthquakes in that region. And an earthquake ultimately destroyed the harbor. And so business moved away and technology moved away from the ancient city of Ephesus. With all its splendor and all of its beauty and its wonderful nicknames, it was also known as the bastion of paganism and sorcery and worldliness. Now, can we think of a city region with a major port and a great nickname, with great technological advances? Can we think of something like that in our modern times? Can a city region like that be reached with the gospel? Well, despite all the barriers, the, the good news of Jesus, Paul writes here, or Luke writes here, was, was heard. And, and it was held in high regard. And there was good gospel impact in that region that left an indelible good change in society. And so even as we consider our own region and we think about the, this whole region, all of Pacific Northwest, and, and boy, people are moving away from going to church, and could it possibly be reached you consider what was really going on in Ephesus. Think, nothing, nothing can stop the plans of God. Amen? So while he was uh, in Ephesus, Paul wrote to Corinth, the church in Corinth. He mentioned, Rich read uh, about Apollos. We read about him in chapter 18, and there's reference to him in, in Paul's letter to uh, Corinth. He says, you know, uh, I, I watered Apollos' reaping. They've sort of swapped Location. So Apollos is in Corinth. Luke is in Ephesus doing ministry, and he writes to the church in Corinth. He writes this in chapter uh, first Corinthians chapter sixteen, verse nine. He says, quote, "A great door for effective work has opened to me, opened to me in Ephesus, and there are many who oppose me." Well, what a wonderful uh, understanding of the situation. You ever do a SWOT analysis, our, our strengths and weaknesses, threats and, and opportunities? Paul says this wonderful opportunity is open to us, and there's a significant threat. And so he's going to ask for prayer. And there, the apostle invested three years. We're thinking about A.D. 54 to 57, longer than any of his other mission trips. And that investment and that commitment to God's plan and that prayer, his reliance on prayer, all preceded what was to be a wave of conversions, a wave of change in that city-state. Great social change and upheaval were the results. So my friends, as we get into this, I want you to see the parallels and see how these words jump off the page at us. This is the New Testament strategic plan for reaching a city region. And I don't see why we should change the plan that God's already given to us in his word. It's absolutely critical that we know it and that we understand it. So let's begin with verse 1. Look at verse 1. <clears throat> Paul arrives at the outskirts of the city, and what does he find there? Twelve guys. Luke writes about twelve guys. Is it twelve? Is it eleven? His memory's kind of a little. About twelve guys. And they call themselves what? Disciples. That's a great start. Paul's there to make disciples of Jesus. Here are 12 
people who self-identify as disciples. That's a great start, right? Start off with a dozen? Well, there's a problem. It says that they were disciples of John the Baptist, not of Jesus. That they had only heard part of the good news. That they had heard the part from John about repenting, turning from their, their wicked ways, and, and to believe in the one that was to come after John, but they didn't know that that one was Jesus. They hadn't yet heard that Jesus literally had come, that he had had a ministry for three years, that he died on a cross, was buried, and three days later rose from the grave, confirming all the things that he had prophesied and promised and shown to the people. And that they had also missed Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. The Holy Spirit arrived in this powerful way. They knew none of that. So they claimed to be disciples, but not of Jesus. It says here, we have, quote, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. What? What? How is that possible? Now let's cut John a little slack. I mean, John the Baptist was martyred for his, for his faith, right? So we can't place blame on John. He, he gave his life for his love for Jesus and his commitment to God. Why would there be 12 or even one person claiming to be a disciple but not knowing these things? In my ministry over the years, I've had time and time to have conversation with folks that are returning to church after many years being away. Maybe their, their kids have gotten plugged into a children's program and through Alpha program. Did we, did we ever do Alpha here? Did we do Alpha years ago? Uh, a, a discipleship training program. They want to rediscover their faith or they want some help so they can answer those tough questions that kids ask at, at bedtime. Daddy, where's God? Like, oh, I don't know how to answer that question. So these folks would come to a church and time and time again, the interesting line of the conversation would go, they'd say, I, I never heard this bit about the gospel before. Wait, really? Yeah, I mean, I went to church for years, but I never, I never heard it. I'm, I'm hearing it now, almost like it's for the first time. And early in my ministry, I thought, well, maybe it's because I'm doing such a great job communicating it compared to others. <laughs> I realize that's not it at all. We need to have ears to hear and, and, and eyes to see, and that's a work that only the Holy Spirit can do in a person's life. And so there's no blame to be put. It was those opportunities that that was the moment that someone was ready to come to faith, whether they were 28 or 38 or 45 or whatever the age was. And so the Lord had not yet done that work in these men's lives. There's no judgment here from Paul. There's, there's no uh, chastising. Simply, we have here 12 that say, we know John's baptism, but we don't know any other. We don't even know we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. They have the head knowledge. They have the head knowledge, of the idea of changing their life to, to make it in order to honor God, but it has not gone the 18 inches down to their heart. They don't know Jesus. Friends, listen, it's not enough for you to believe that God loves the world. You must be gripped by the realization that God loves you. That God loves you. And so receiving the Holy Spirit is the, is the requirement of every true disciple. So we are a Presbyterian church, but let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is here and is available to you. 
So right there and then, Paul says, oh, you haven't received the Holy Spirit? Let's have a mini Pentecost moment. It says he teaches them, he baptizes them, he lays hands on them, and what happens? It says they begin to speak in tongues. They begin to prophesy. They begin to praise God in native languages, in different languages. They begin to lift up the name of Jesus. Paul says, give me 12. That's more than enough to reach a whole city. So number one, numero uno on your, on your outline for a strategic plan to reach a city region is this. God's servants are radicalized. They're radicalized. Now, obviously, that word has, has negative connotations, especially with regard to the clash of civilizations happening in our world today. But, but what other conclusion can we come to from our study of Scripture, from our study this summer of the parables about the kingdom, about the Lord God, the Lord Jesus, turning our world upside down or right side up? But the reality is his call on you and me to be his disciple is nothing less than radical. Radical love, radical service, extreme new priorities. That's fundamental to the nature of Christianity. So in order to reach our region with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to convert and train up and send out spirit-filled radicals. That's why cultural Christianity is fading away. And maybe I dare say good riddance. Because people were coming to church for so many reasons other than a passionate love and devotion to the Lord Jesus. And the nons, that fastest growing segment of a population in, in, uh, in America today, are made up of folks that once said, yeah, I'm a Christian, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, mainline, whatever it is, and now they don't want the label because they were never on board in the first place. God loved them. We, we want them to come back and hear this message and respond to it. So the first priority of God's servants is that God's servants are radicalized. And here we have 12 men experiencing radical transformation, touched by God. They praise the Lord. They prophesy in other languages, and then they're sent out. So that's number one. Number two, God's word is proclaimed. Paul followed the same pattern wherever he went. He started in the synagogue. It says, quote, he spoke boldly and argued persuasively about the kingdom of God in the synagogue, only to a Jewish audience or to God-fearing Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. Three months of ministry in the synagogue, boldly, persuasively, confidently proclaiming the gospel out of which part of the Bible? Which part of the Bible? The Hebrew Scriptures. The Hebrew Scriptures. He was proclaiming out of the Hebrew Scriptures the freedom, the rescue plan, the restoration offered by God. Anemic preaching is bloodless, colorless, unhealthy, tired, and weak. You ever see someone who's anemic? Do we have any, any nurses or doctors? And do you need to be a nurse or doctor to, to know someone something's not right? 
When someone's kind of jaundiced, can you tell something's not, they look kind of yellow or, or they look very, there's preaching that happens that way. There, there, there's no power. There's no authority behind it. I got a card in the mail uh, inviting me to church. Just come and, and listen to a, the great jokes from the guest speaker. That's what it said, the jokes. I don't want, I'm not a comedian, right? You can tell, right? I'm terribly unfunny. That preaching will not change anything. You know, put a smile on your face and you walk out with, oh, that was a, that was a nice antidote. We need red-hot preaching from the pulpit today about the blood-bought redemption of Christ. Red-hot. Be before Paul arrived in Acts 18, we talked about Apollos, that fellow Apollos. It says that, that he taught about Jesus. It says that he taught accurately. It was fine. It was fine. It was good. People actually liked him. He probably, you look at uh, 1 Corinthians, and there's some debate, you know, Paul was probably sort of an unattractive person. Have you heard this? There's some thoughts that he probably was a thorn in his side. Who knows what it was? Maybe it was a big zit. I don't know what it was. But Apollos, I mean, even the name Apollos, he filled a room. He taught about Jesus. But it was just fine. What was the change? It says in Acts 18, it wasn't until Priscilla and Aquila discipled Apollos. They pulled him into their small group, into their home group, and they said, hey, let's make sure you, you got your facts straight about Jesus and the gospel. I mean, you, you're a great communicator. Boy, you can really whip up a crowd. But let's make sure you get the gospel right. A Acts 18, 26, it says, they invited him, Apollos, to their home and explained to him the way of God. I love this, what Paul says. He's so, he's so, more adequately. Is that great? Just great message. Boy, that when you had the fireworks coming down and the bubble machine, that would, but could we just be a little bit more adequate with the gospel? And when he did, it says, he became bold and saw results. Folks, as a church, we need to make sure that we're committed to training up the next generation. We need to make sure that, that our staff are being fully trained, that we're if they need to go back to seminary or start seminary for the first time or when we have interns come up and they say, I'm interested in, in learning how to do ministry, we need to make opportunity for them to learn hands-on in ministry, to learn book knowledge, but also life knowledge in our church, right? Amen? Then we can send them out. Imagine all the men and women who have left this church and have gone all over the country, around the world, who have been trained up for, by this church to do gospel ministry. That has to always be a priority for us. Now, in Paul's case, all of his preaching was spirit-filled. And he says, I'm not a man of words. I'm not funny. I would think that he'd say, I don't have much of a sense of humor. He doesn't seem to have much of a sense of humor in some of his, his letters. But his preaching was spirit-filled. And how to go at first? Not great. I mean, look at the text. It says... The Jews, that's where he went first. It says they were obstinate. That means they were stubborn. They refused to believe. La, 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 la. <laughs> and worse than that, they, they were disparaging the way. That was the name of Christians. They would, that, was their, that was their name, the, the way. You think spelling out what the Torah says about the Messiah coming would, would soften their hearts, that, that good preaching, that good communication would, would reach them, but it did not God had to do something that only God could do. 
And when the people were rejecting him in the synagogues after three months, what did Paul do? What was his, his MO? What did he do time and again? You're not willing to listen? You're not willing to accept? I'm out of here. And he walked. After three months or three years or whatever it took, Paul knew it was time to move on. And where did he go? Did he just hang it up, say, well, I'm not going to preach anymore? Those people aren't interested. Where did he go? Look at the text. He didn't leave town. It says that he rented a public hall. That's Tyrannus. The hall of Tyrannus was a public hall. And we have extra biblical information that this was a public hall, a public place, that especially during the heat of the day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., no air conditioning, uh, people would go for their afternoon siesta, but they could go to the hall of Tyrannus and, and hear lectures, hear TED Talks, I guess, or whatever it was, you could go and, and, and have lunch and listen to a lecture and, and, and learn from someone something new, a skill that you didn't have. And so these lunchtime lectures, Luke writes, happened. And who was gathered there? Was it the religious Jews? No, it was the, the pagan Gentiles. So, so get this, five days uh, excuse me, five hours a day, six days a week, 52 weeks a year for two years, Paul rented out this hall. It's a big investment. He preached and he reasoned with the Gentiles and he answered their questions. That's 3,120 hours of investment in other people off campus. Oh, come, come to a place that's scary into a, a church building and come in and we'll lock the doors and then we'll have your attention for an hour or two. Paul went out and invested over 3,000 hours talking with people. He writes in feet to the church in, in Ephesus later, he writes, uh, when there is a church there established, this is years later, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he again asks for their prayer. He writes, quote, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare as I ought to speak. That's humbling and inspiring at the same time. Paul went to a place where there are only a few believers, and there's a dozen disciples of John, and here it is, years later, there's an established church there's many incredible things that happen in the city of Ephesus. And they, they could attribute it to Paul. And when he writes this letter from Rome in chains, he says, I, my prayer right now with these chains on me, my prayer is that I would be more bold in preaching the gospel. Isn't that amazing? The servants radicalized. The word proclaimed, number three, God's power is demonstrated. Verses 11 to 17. God did extraordinary miracles there. We, we see miracles of, of healings, healings of sickness and diseases, exercising of evil spirits. This was this amazing time at the beginning of the church where the Holy Spirit was powerfully moving. And it says here, Luke writes, that the people touched cloth that had touched Paul. And that was enough to, to heal them. Can you imagine that? Cloth, you tore some cloth, it says an apron or a handkerchief. Now, was Paul making money off of this? Was he a con man like we see on TV? 
Send away, 1995, 12 easy payments. No, he wasn't making money off of this. Yeah, people were powerfully being healed by, by cloth, by Paul. No, those were, were conduits, though, through which the power of God was touching these people and healing them. As, as amazing as, as it is to have a, a physical manifestation of the spirit of, of a physical healing, how much more amazing is it to have a spiritual, eternal healing by the Holy Spirit? As someone comes home to church and, and they say, I'm, I'm, I'm in remission, I'm cancer-free, and we say, hallelujah, praise God, you're free of cancer in this life. But to know that your soul is saved for eternity and that you get a new body. Who needs a new body? Oh, far better, isn't it? Far better. I hope I can jump in the next one. Get a little vertical. Okay, then along come the sons of Sceva. It sounds like a heavy metal band. The sons of Sceva. They come back. Now, back then, names really meant something. And they went by this name, the sons of Sceva, these seven fellows. Uh, why? Because they were trading off of their father's name. When he was a high priest, and that brought a lot of credibility. They were the sons of a high priest. They must be good, right? If, if you're the son of somebody important, then you must be important. Isn't that how things still work today? And so these, uh, these guys had street cred, and they're traveling around, and they're performing what? Exorcisms. That's how they made their money. It's anybody's guess how they were doing it. Were they just con men? Were they dabbling in the dark arts? We don't know. But since they had heard about Paul and his quote-unquote success, they said, well, if it works for, for him, maybe it will work for us. And so what do they do? They, they start casting demons out in the name of Jesus that Paul talks about. We're not exactly sure who he is. Come out. And what happens? They come across a man possessed by an evil spirit, not one of their plants. You know, I'm sure they had someone planted out there. Maybe the youngest brother had to sometimes, why do I always have to be the one to pretend that? I was, Shut up. Play your part. Now they come up against somebody who actually is on something, PCP. I don't know what it is back then, but it's definitely an evil spirit. Is Look what it says. I know Jesus, Paul I know about, but who are you? And the sons of Sceva get the snot kicked out of them. <laughs> and it's kind of funny, isn't it? But if we were there, how terrifying would that be? How terrifying if we saw that with our own eyes. And I feel a little sorry for them, don't you? They're, they're, no, <laughs> no. Okay. Okay, but listen, here's the important part. Here's the important point I want to make. Listen. When God's power is demonstrated through localized ministry... When God's power is demonstrated through a localized ministry or mission through the church, the evil one tries to imitate it and replicate it to draw people away from the truth. Okay? That happens. That's happening right now. That will happen over the next five years with the plans that we have. Humbly before the Lord, I, I, I believe this is God's plan for us. We will see this duplicated and replicated, but there'll be something off about it. 
because this is the evil one's M.O. Paul knew this all too well. He writes also back to the church in Ephesus later on, again from chains, chapter 6, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If we are going to reach South King County, training up radical disciples, being fluent in gospel, praying for spiritual rescue and restoration, serving through social ministries. Uh, Pastor Frank mentioned the deacon's ministry. The reason they're so low on funds is because they've been giving the money out and blessing people and keeping them in their homes and paying off their bills. If we're doing all these things, folks, we cannot be naive to the spiritual conflict that we are engaging in. It will stir up a spiritual hornet's nest. And that's happening. And we need to be serious about it. And that means a ministry of prayer. And I would rate our prayer life, and, and I take responsibility as, as one of your pastors for this. I think our prayer life as a church, I'd say, is about a six. We need to crank it up to 11. Seriously. Previous church, I had a team praying. It would be like in the hospitality room during every service, through the service, praying for what was happening in here. See new people coming? We're blessed by that. Imagine if we have a prayer team of warriors. Whereas six, we can do better. Number four, number four. So God's servants are radicalized. God's word is proclaimed. Power is demonstrated. God's people are what? Just make sure you're still awake. Okay. Notice what happened after this incident. And, and if you keep reading on, eventually, you know what happens in Ephesus? Uh, there's a riot. They have to call the riot police. And Ephesus didn't have riot police. They just had soldiers. And they didn't have batons. They had spears. Verse 17 says, All this became known to all of the residents of the city. And, quote, they were seized with fear. David talked about the same word last week. Fear. Phobos. Fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Fear, a, a reverent fear, an, an awe, blown away, you might say. Not exactly the, the type of message that we would say is our goal. We want to make everyone afraid. No, no, no. We want them to, to experience the awe of the living God. And look at what happens next. It says people start confessing their sin, divulging their, their wicked practices. Did you see that? Look at verse 18. Which people? Who's confessing sins and divulging their wicked practices? Is it pagans? Is it religious Jews? It's believers. It's people who have heard the gospel and responded and say, yes, I believe in Jesus. They are the ones, it's Christians, before they were even called Christians, it's Christians that are confessing their sins and divulging of their evil practices. Friends, if we want revival, listen, Every historical revival in the church for 2,000 years has started with people of God confessing their sin. Every single one of them. That's how it started. What were the people doing? Forms of witchcraft and magic arts. Do any of us engage in witchcraft or magic arts? You can raise your hand. Worldliness. Things we would be ashamed to mention. 
things that are unspeakable. It says, it says they brought the, the, all their, their junk together and they, they burned it in public. Now, what did we do back in the, uh, in the 50s and 60s? We were burning Elvis, uh, Elvis albums, right? No, but imagine burning your own stuff. God's people were transformed. What kind of strategy are we talking about? We're talking about something that only God can do. So here, here are folks, listen. Do your non-Christian friends, your neighbors, see you living a different way than everyone else? Can your neighbors look at your life and say, this person, there's something different about them? Whether they like it or not, maybe they're, they're not attracted to you, maybe they're trying, but do they see something different or are you just doing all the same things that everyone, every other resident of our region does? The same investments, the same time, the same priorities. Well, these believers realized that their priorities were not lined up with kingdom priorities. And it was not cheap. 50,000 drachmas in today's money, that's $6 million burnt up. Friends, it is essential we cultivate a deep awe of the holy, a deep desire to be in his presence, a growing reliance on his power, an unquenchable passion for his fame, it will cost us. As a result of all this, this blueprint, this strategy, the raising up of radically committed disciples, of a bold ministry of the word, the demonstrating of God's power, and, and people being reached and transformed, the city and the region around it was reached by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is happening here. In the next passage, there's a riot. What, what might God have in store for us in the next five years? Let's not pray for a riot, okay? These are extraordinary times, folks. A guy that has extraordinary things in store for us, they're beginning to come into focus. We want everyone here that calls this church their home to know it, to see it, to believe it, to add in your input, yes and, or how about this, or have you considered that? And we want to listen and we want to work this together. Look at verse 20. Is this plan any good? This is what would happen. Verse 20, and then we'll close with this. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. It grew in power. The gospel grew in power. That's how we know that we're on track. The power of the blood. The power is the outpouring of the spirit. Power to convert, power to redeem, power to adopt, power to free people, power to resurrect broken relationships, power to heal and love, power to change, power to give. We sing a song, the wonder-working power is in the blood of the Lamb. So let's pray as we prepare to come to the table now. Lord God, we pray that this plan that we're going to unveil next week, this blueprint, this strategy, Lord God, would be of you. And we pray, Lord, that you'd be honored in it. We pray, Lord, that the results of it, the measures would be the same things we see in, in Acts 19, that, that the word of the Lord would spread, that, uh, that your name would be honored and lifted on high, Lord. How would it be amazing if, if through the, the priorities and the investments that we're making as a church, all of your churches throughout all of South King County began to grow,
and that together we worked as, as one big church with a capital C to see that come together. Lord, we, we need you to do something that only you can do. It begins with, with our hearts being touched by your spirit, being radically transformed by you, Lord Jesus. We don't want to just know about you, Jesus. We want to know you personally. So as you invite us to this table, finally, finally, we're going to have a quiet moment. Friends, I invite you just to take this quiet moment without distraction to confess your sins quietly before the Lord. Just lay those things before the Lord verbally in your head or just by picture form, things you want to lay down. What would you lay down before the Lord? And entrust to him, confess to him, and still know that he loves you, loves you so much this morning. Let's do that for just a moment this, this hour.